0: Welcome to the Create and Grow podcast. This is Janine Ledford, your host and creator of the groundbreaking concepts of intercultural creativity and prismatic leadership. These concepts focus on the integration of creative thinking and cultural development while preparing your leaders for the future of work. So if you're looking for new, exciting ways to build a positive culture of curiosity, inclusion, and belonging, that sparks creativity, this is your place. And it's all based on brain science. We have exciting guests on this show in various fields, such as neuroscience, education, the arts, and business, who highlight how creative thinking thrives in a culture of diverse collaboration. At the Create and Grow podcast, you'll discover how inclusion drives innovation, especially when you have an arts-infused foundation. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Create and Grow podcast. I am so excited to have you with us yet again about, with a wonderful conversation with the top thought leaders around the world. We are out of America now, heading into Canada with some of the top thought leaders to the north of me. I have with me Shaquille chaudhry and he is an award-winning educator, and a consultant and author with over 25 years of experience in the field of racial justice, diversity, and inclusion. He coaches executive teams and has worked with thousands of leaders across sectors in Canada and the United States to help improve their equity outcomes. Shaquille also facilitates dialogue processes to resolve intergroup conflict, having led projects internationally as well as organizations locally. He is the author of deep diversity a compassionate scientific approach to achieving racial justice written in an accessible storytelling manner you know i write my books the same way we love stories your brain loves stories so this is his book is written in a storytelling manner and many have called it a breakthrough book on issues of systemic racial discrimination due to its non-judgmental approach that in- integrates human psychology with critical race perspectives Shaquille's most challenging and rewarding management experience, however, involves his two high-spirited children repeatedly teaching him the humble lessons of fatherhood. To clear his head during the week, Shaquille loves to run the beautiful Ravine Trails near his home in Toronto. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me here, Janine. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's just jump right in. There's a lot to talk about, you know, a little bit about my work with intercultural creativity and prismatic leadership. And the reason why I was drawn to your work is a lot of your thinking and framework parallels a lot of why I do what I'm doing in the position that I am. So first, if you could just give a little bit of more of a background of how you got to be where you are today.
1: Sure. So professionally, I've been professionally, I'm trained as a middle school teacher and taught middle school grade seven and eight for a number of years. By passion, however, I've always been involved since my mid-20s in community organizing and specifically racial justice work. And because I'm a teacher, I've been involved in racial justice education for a long time. And eventually, I left the classroom and started doing this work independently. My work comes from more of the harder edge of racial justice work. I've been trained in anti-racism and anti-oppression work. And why that's important is that the first half dozen years of, of doing my work, both as a community activist and as an organizer and as an educator, resulted in me burning out. And why that's important is that that burning out forced me onto a, a healing journey, a journey that continues today. And what it got me to start realizing is that while I'm really interested in helping fix the brokenness and the, in the world outside, that there's a relationship in, in the fact that I also have to do the inner work and Mm -hmm. the heal the broken bits that I carry within that all of us have due to our life experiences. And in doing so made me start questioning how I was doing my work. And in terms of my work started altering because I started incorporating the self-awareness pieces into racial justice work, emotional intelligence, psychology, eventually neuroscience, trauma therapy, and just doing the work and realizing that, that it's really important to show up in our work very much with the Gandhian approach of, You know be the change you want to see in the world so that meant that i have to show up in a different way i have to show up with compassion i have to show up having done more of my work in order to help learners learn and at this point most of the learners i'm dealing with are inside organizations i'm working with executive teams i'm working with managers i'm working with lawyers i'm working with healthcare folks i'm working with all kinds of people at all kinds of different levels And so I have to show up realizing that this work around racial justice and equity is incredibly emotional. And I'm trying to teach concepts around how to create more justice in the world, how to see patterns inside their organizations and inside themselves, while this is really emotional work. In fact, I would argue that this work is 90 percent emotional and 10 percent cognitive. And most of our blocks In terms of creating more justice and equity, there's no shortage of good ideas. Ideas aren't the problem. There's lots of good ideas about how to create more justice. The blocks are not at the cognitive level, they're at the emotional level. They're at the level in which our unconscious, our reactivity, our tribal nature, all these different elements, things that are happening well below the radar of our awareness, start coming into play. And so, learning to dance with those and helping people dance with those elements that are within us is the work and that requires a lot of respect and care.
0: So true, so true and and that's really why your work was highlighted to me. Just seeing how just the numbers are showing, the research is showing that a lot of uh, you know equ- equity work or inclusion work has not been really taking a huge effect or has not been successful and you know just wondering why and are we approaching it with a lot of the cognitive academic Aspects and not really factoring in the emotional journey that people are coming to and what they're coming in with, right? People are coming in with their set of lived experiences, and so you have a great metaphor with how people are learn how to read. Can you explain that one?
1: Sure. So, so let me let me just back up for a quick okay. second because you you talked about this. I want to just talk about effectiveness of okay. of diversity, equity, inclusion work for a moment, just to contextualize it. So if you're working inside organizations or helping anybody do this kind of work, there's different approaches that people use, you know, on, um, on one end of the spectrum, there's things like the business case for diversity, right? And it's very corporate and it says there's some useful elements to it, but fundamentally it's really saying, Hey, we've got to change systems because it's of high value to the organization. There's another set of people that think that, that the approach to this work is it's intercultural. We just have to learn the differences between our cultures. And both of those approaches have, some, have strengths and they have their weaknesses. The place that I come trained from is really around systems, around systems of oppression and how that creates dynamics in which there are minority groups, minoritized groups that just experience the world in a very different way. And they're more likely to be Underserved in the healthcare system, they will be overpoliced in criminal justice system, and generally treated less well in the education system. And so, all of these elements are at play now. All these systems have have their strengths and their weaknesses. The problem is, is that, is that we don't often talk about the strengths and weaknesses, and we especially don't talk about the strengths and weaknesses when it comes to justice work, which is the way that I've been trained. And so, having thought about this for a long time. I came upon a realization, which was, what is it about people who are progressive, people like me, that when something like George Floyd happens, when Ahmaud Arbery, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery happens, why are we immediately incensed and enraged? Well, we're incensed and enraged because this is not a one-off. Why are we incensed and enraged when we encounter another story in which students are being suspended at disproportionate rates and that has something to do with actually in fact their identity and background rather than their behavior why do we get incensed we get incensed because we know these aren't one-offs we know these are part of patterns patterns that are alive today and our historical patterns so we ask different kinds of questions we're like Where's the accountability? Why did this happen again? And 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 we are looking and trying to identify the abuses of power. A lot of other folks can't see those patterns. That's one of the one of the things that I'm aware of is that they can't see the patterns, and as a result, the questions they ask are weak questions. They're fragile questions. They're asking questions about the interpersonal nature of well, was it something they said? Is it some, how they were dressed? They ask questions that that are devoid of context, okay? So as I've been thinking about this and I, it occurred to me that it's about patterns, well, then my teacher learning kicked in. And so then I started thinking about, oh, right, patterns. Well, racism and sexism are systemic problems. So we have to help people, especially leaders become systems thinkers. And the key to systems thinking is pattern recognition and the relationship between the patterns. So what I mean by that is that if we think about this in the, in the case of language, before a letter turns into a word that turns into a sentence that has a meaning, before all of that, it's just a squiggly line. It has no meaning. But over time, we teach students, whether they're young people or whether they are adults learning English as a second language, for example, to decode the patterns. And once the patterns get decoded, it's no longer squiggly lines. There's meaning here. And once the patterns become decoded, then reading becomes easy. Speaking the language, writing, all of these things become much easier. Now, when it comes to things like racial justice and equity, diversity and inclusion, we're also talking about patterns. We're talking about behavioral patterns. So, for example, if a manager in a workplace does not know that the basic Sexist micro pattern of women being interrupted at meetings more than their male counterparts. They don't even know that's a thing. When it happens in front of them, they don't respond, or they don't react. It just registers as a squiggly line. It has no meaning. And sexism suddenly lives on under their watch. Equally, in the context of schools and education, if teachers and administrators are not aware of the well established micro pattern of students of color uh, often experiencing, especially black and indigenous students experiencing greater criticism and harsher punishment for the same kinds of things that, that their more normative white peers might encounter. If they don't even know that's a thing, then again, when it happens in front of them or they do it themselves, it registers as a squiggly line. It has no meaning. So what we have to do is help people decode the patterns, but these are behavioral patterns. And when we put this in the frame of patterns and we put this in the frame of verifiable phenomena, well, then people can go look for them. So when I was in in, uh, working with a a senior leadership team, one of the, the senior leaders said, hey, Shkel, you know, last time you told me about that whole thing about women being interrupted in meetings, and I thought to myself, okay, there's zero chance that happens in our organization because our organization is filled with people who are cooperative and look after each other. So, but you know, you challenged me to go look for it. I said, all right, I'll go look for it. And then when I went back to my workplace, I was shocked, it was happening everywhere. And so this is why entering this work from the perspective of of racial justice and equity being a literacy project, not just an urgency project helps us more. And there's a rule of thumb in English as an additional language. It takes about 360 hours for an adult to learn English as an additional language. Well, based on my research, that's about as good of a benchmark as we have for anything around EDI work. So the things that we are, that I'm promoting is say, okay, well, let's use 360 hours as a benchmark to also achieve a basic level of proficiency around equity, diversity, and inclusion. And that gives us, first of all, it deconstructs this whole idea of, of like, and unconscious bias training is going to fix the thing. It also gives us a, a, a bit of a stretch goal that's not impossible. It's like one hour of learning a day for a year or the equivalent of 10 36-hour university courses. That's reasonable, but it helps us start thinking about this work in a very different way and develop a different kind of proficiency and a different kind of uh, literacy that, that doesn't exist today for lots and lots of people and lots and lots of organizations.
0: Uh, all that is good. I I want to tap uh, back into uh, just that story that you shared about how the gentleman started seeing it once he became aware of it and intention. I, I do have a, a brain. I travel with the brain. I speak with, with the brain. <laughs> I love the brain. You should <laughs> probably get get one too. Folks love it when, when you pull this out. But I, I think, you know, I was telling people that I don't think people could do this work, any type of you know, inclusion work or creativity work coming from from my perspective without really talking about the brain because this is is it. And what fMRIs are showing us now that we didn't have access to 20 years ago, it's just phenomenal. And you can even look at, you know, there's companies spending billions of dollars for your attention. Mm -hmm. Your attention is valuable. It's critical. And I have a podcast with Dr. Michael Platt, who is a neuroscientist at the Wharton Business School. He's in the business school and in real science and psychology and anthropology. He has his leg, his foot in several different areas, which I love because there's that that interdiscipline going on that I really uh, admire. And he was talking about how the higher you go in an organization, Mm -hmm. the less creative you are because your brain does not want to shift perspectives as much as if you were on other levels. And what does ego do? What does position do? In fact, I even created a course around this concept, calling it a, you know, power position and purpose, you know, just how, how can we use this information to help our senior leaders really take control of this? And like your story says, help them take control of their attention. Like, what does that look like? Right? Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Any thoughts around that? Around around power? Because you do work with a lot of senior level leaders as well, correct?
1: Yeah. So I think power is is the most critical part of this conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion is helping people see how power manifests, especially its abuses of power. And I always like to start with the internal world. And when it comes to power, there is such incredibly important research that happens. And the research you know, shows that the higher up we go in positions of power, the more likely it is that we become more decisive. There's greater use of generalizations and stereotypes. There is an increase in double standards. What's okay for me is not okay for them, right? Especially those people below me. And so there's lots of really important research that's emerging in here. And what's interesting is all of those things that occur at the individual level are what we're seeing at the system level. It's just it's about groups. Dominant group members behave the same way towards non-dominant group members. There's more ability to use stereotypes. There's double standards. There's all these different kinds of things that that happen. The story, the research story that I love, and you may have come across this too, is the Cookie Monster story. Are you familiar with this one? For your listeners, I'll, I'll share this. It's, it's really great. So they take basically three random people and they're, they're in a lab doing, a, doing a, getting paid to do an experiment. And they're told that basically they're doing some, it almost doesn't matter what they're doing. It basically is they're doing some task and the three of them have to work on it together. okay And one of the three randomly is put into the position of the supervisor of the other two based on anything else, just randomly. And so they're doing their thing and the real experiment actually starts partway through when the research assistant shows up with a plate of five cookies, there's enough for everyone to have one each, but there's not enough for everyone to have two. And so during the time period, the question becomes who gets the second cookie and who does not? In a statistically significant manner, more often than not, the person who took the second cookie was the one who had positional power. And when they actually did qualitative when we looked at the videos they also noticed some interesting things they noticed that the person's body language was much more relaxed they took up more space they some of the some of the folks ate their cookies with more abandon, with like crumbs flying out of their mouths and not really caring <laughs> a deep sense of entitlement mm. okay so that happened with a random group of three people and they did that over and over again and found similar kinds of results. Mm-hmm. So it just speaks to this idea that positional power matters when we're talking about that inside organizations. So when I say the leaders are like, okay, hello, I do hope at this point, you know, especially in are executive team, that the higher up you get, the less likely that people are going to tell you the truth, right? Like, cause they're not speaking to you as a person, they're speaking to your position. Mm-hmm. And are you aware of that now layer on top of that social identity? This is what happens around race. This is what happens around gender. If you're heterosexual, if you're cisgender, if you're able-bodied, we just end up having more privilege. And with privilege comes a certain level of psychological safety, more ability to take risks, more ability to see other groups who are lower down on on the ladder from us in stereotyped ways so this is happening both with position in terms of our job titles and it's also happening in in our positions based on our social identities and how those social identities are ranked in society both consciously and unconsciously according to historical markers so i think about power in those ways and i think the brain research is really fascinating because it really helps us understand what can happen is one thing that I always want to say about the unconscious is what's hidden has more power, mm-hmm. what we can't see has more influence. We can identify something when we can name it, we can also tame it. So, being aware of these tendencies, which is just part of the human condition, the more aware we are of these tendencies within us and within organizations, the more likely it is we can catch ourselves in the act of bias, catch ourselves in the act of abuses of power, even if they're on a micro level, and learn to catch ourselves and other people and hold ourselves accountable and our organizations
0: accountable. Yeah, Dr. David Eagleman says that the subconscious brain is actually running the show.
1: 100%.
0: He he says your conscious brain, the part that wakes up when you wake up, is the broom closet that is in the mansion of your mind. Yes. And when he said I laugh and I I repeat them all, all the time. Uh, He has a wonderful Mm -hmm. pbs.org documentary. I highly recommend it. And it's episode five is called The Social Brain. I think you would really enjoy that. Yeah. Because another thing that he he, he talks about, and I bring this in when I do my trainings on building trust within uh, diverse teams, is that... They found two separate neural networks that shut on and off depending on in-group, out-group distinctions.
1: 100%.
0: And these networks are laced with empathy and compassion. Yes. And so if they shut off, (laughs) if I classify you as an out-group, I'm less likely to, to be empathetic, and which leads to compassion. So there's no compassion going on. I'm less likely to consider something we call your theory of mind. The fact that you have agency, you have thought, you have the ability to have multiple perspectives. I'm just not categor. I'm not using those the, that narrow network as opposed to if I classified you as my in-group. That's why I said, oh, you yeah, know, he's a teacher like me. Like my brain was like in-group, 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 right? Even though physically you're, you're a different gender, um, I believe you're a different ethnicity, even though I, I don't want one to assume you can clarify that. But, you know, I normally lead with this because another thing that drew me to you, and I think it's just our, our education, because we work with students and I work with the young, younger ones. So this is kindergarten through fifth grade. I'm not going to look at my third grader and be like, okay, you're eight. You're going to be like this for the next 20 years. I, I know this third grader's on a journey. I know if I leave and come back 10 years ago, if this third grader has not grown physically, cognitively, emotionally, academically, those are red flags, right? You automatically have those. There's milestones for infants for a reason. But when we work with adults, let's say a 25-year-old, if I go somewhere for five years and come back and nothing has really changed, red flags may not go off. What? Why do they go off when we work with children, but they don't go off when we work with adults, especially with this journey of self-awareness? and inclusion and in leadership. What are your thoughts about that? So many thoughts.
1: <laughs> so, you know, I, first of all, the, you know, the comment that you said about in groups and what part of the brain to get processed in, there's a lot of really interesting research there that that really aligns. So we know, for example, that as you said, our empathy circuits light up when we're around people that we perceive to be part of our in-group. In fact, you know, watching somebody drink a glass of water if we perceive them to be from our group, activates our motor neurons as though we ourselves are drinking that glass of water. So basically what scientists conclude is that me and we, information when I'm thinking about myself, information when I'm thinking about my in-group, gets processed in the same part of the brain. And that empathy response is much less from dealing without groups, but equally our threat response systems, the amygdala region, starts getting activated when we're even just viewing images of people we perceive to be different than ourselves. Okay. And, and so our threat response system goes off again, unconsciously. So this in-group out-group dynamic is at play. Again, if we know that this is a part of me, part of the human condition, then we can do something about it. We can be on the lookout for it. The most troubling part of the research that I've, that I've come across is that, certain outgroups get processed in an entirely different part of the brain. And that part of the brain we're processing the information about objects and things. So for your listeners let that sink in, objects and things. Like that's the metaphorical back door of the brain, okay? And what that means is that like this whole idea of when we look at the tragedies around dehumanization across human history and current day, we're often left wondering like how do they do that? How did that happen? How can people be so savage? You know, post-World War II, the question was, what was wrong with the Germans? How could they do, how could the Holocaust happen? And I mean, there's many reasons for that. And there's nothing wrong with the Germans. There's nothing wrong, wrong in the sense of like, deviant behavior is not because of deviant humans. Deviant behavior is because we all carry that potential within.
0: Yeah, yeah. That
1: ability to dehumanize is within us all. And so when I think about this, I think about, okay, well, think about a dehumanization is a dial that goes from like zero to 100%. And when we're thinking about dehumanization at the 90 to 100%, we're talking about genocide. We're talking about ethnic cleansing. People have gone to that scale. But I'm like, okay, while most people can't in their day-to-day life relate to that, let's bring that dial back. What does it look like if you dehumanize by 10%? What does it look like if you dehumanize by 1%? Okay, and so the 1% dehumanization is something we do on a day-to-day basis. If we're not aware of it, what I invite people to do is, is we can dehumanize by 1% by when we are more uncaring, more curt, more cynical, more critical, more judgmental towards particular groups of people. And so I always say, ask the courageous question about identity. Don't ask if identity is at play. Instead, ask when, where, how, and why is identity getting activated? And that point is the 1% dehumanization. We can learn to catch that within ourselves. And for some people, I'm also like, people, are especially progressives, they're like, when I'm talking about this, they're often like, oh my gosh, yeah, that dehumanization, I know exactly who you're talking about. And the implication is, but it's not me. And I'm like, oh yeah? Okay. Well, how do you think about people who are on the other end of the political spectrum from you? Do you see them as threats? You see them as a blob, because yeah. that's something humanization wiring out yeah. play. Right
0: and even even something that not a psychologist, but psychology, that was my field of study. So I'm always doing these like mini experiments in my own own home, especially when you have these little humans in your own home. You you can run like little experiments and And so after watching that PBS special with Dr. David Eagleman out of Stanford, he talked exactly about that. And if there's any brain nerds out there, the part of the brain that he's referring to is your medial prefrontal cortex, which calms down when you are observing people from the out group, people from your in-group or your loved ones is more active. And what he said is, you know, if you're even walking past someone who's on the street, someone who's experiencing homelessness and you Mm -hmm. just don't see it, that is there and my family and I—that's actually one of the areas that my my company supports—is organizations feeding those who are food insecure and experiencing homelessness. And so we have these things called blessing bags in our car, just you know, in case we're we're at a stop sign and and we we see someone, and just Love doing that, that right? Because we're all about. You, it seems like you and I are all all about. Yeah, these there's abstract terms and everything, but what does this look like on the day to day? Like, how do we walk this out? And right. so even by having these bags in my car, just, you know, water, socks, just, you know, snacks and stuff. It opened my mind map. It opened my visual field. Like now I'm more aware because I have things to literally give right. this group that my mind would normally automatically put in an out group. Right. And then I have my son, he's five now. And how how old are your kids? They are nine and 11. Okay. I have to get your address because we have to send you our books. My son and I, uh, we co-write books okay. together about this stuff in the brain and being creative. And I'm in the car with him, He's, and we call them diamond friends. Because, you know, I'm trying to see if I can change my brain to say, how can I look at everyone and ask the question, how do you shine? You know, mm-hmm. like, where's your, where's, where are your diamond qualities? Mm-hmm. Even if you're on the street in a tent, like my son has, we've spoken to everyone. And my son has spoken to the mayor of our city and helped pass out blessing back. So the cool thing was, like, he is looking out for them himself. It's in his visual field. Hey, hey, mom, I think there's a diamond friend over there. Do we have any bags to, to, to give? And that that, it, and that wasn't me. It, that was a big aha moment because just by him being in my sphere of this is something that our family believes in, we, we do, it's altering his brain to say, this is important to me. So, yeah.
1: Mm, that's just beautiful. Sure that. What it makes me also think of is that there's lots of, I mean, what you're doing is a great Is a great practical strategy Mm -hmm. of actually doing like physically doing and also cognitively doing because in order to do the physical giving you're also expanding your cognitive field there's also interesting research that comes out around you know our tendency towards dehumanization is automatic Mm -hmm. but it's not impervious and in fact we can humanize people Mm -hmm. Uh, and according to the research especially on bias you want to tackle your negative biases, the key to it is asking a simple question like, I wonder if they like carrots, right? The carrot strategy is interesting because basically what we're doing is we're individuating them. So our brain just as easily moves people out of the dehumanization category by simply asking the question that makes them an individual, individuates them. Okay. So asking the question an extension of do they like carrots? I wonder where they lived when they were a child. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many siblings they had, or whether they were an only child. I wonder, and as we start wondering, mm-hmm. that activates a different part that humanizes. So so just as easy as our brain can deconstruct and put people into these categories, we can just as, as easily expand the circle of we. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when people start realizing the some of the brain stuff that's at play, the automatic nature of it and how easily we can outgroup people and dehumanize people, people start getting overwhelmed and like, oh my God, I got to deal with injustice and I got to deal with all this stuff inside me as well. Like now people are getting paralyzed. I'm like, whoa, hang on, hang on, hang on. Remember, we've been expanding the circle of we for a very long time. Mm -hmm. As there was slavery, there was anti-slavery movements. There was women's suffrage and the right to vote. They didn't have fancy understanding of neuroscience. They were expanding the circle of we human rights and civil rights, same-sex marriage, trans rights, all of these are expanding the circle of we, okay? That is the journey we're on. That's a journey our species has been on for many hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And so so we got to realize that now we actually, like we shouldn't be overwhelmed as we start learning about our, our wiring and how our brain functions we can actually use that because just as easy, we can find ways around it. What I always think about is that as we start understanding the issues around race and identity, we have to go beyond skin color because it's actually neurological. We are We are born with the wiring that wants to discriminate and has to put people into compartments and the world into compartments and categories, which is another word for stereotype, we have to see the world with filters on because otherwise we'd be utterly overwhelmed by the millions of pieces of information our brain has to process every second. So that's just another another variation of bias. It allows in some information, cuts other information out. So the way that our brain works I think is really liberating as well because it helps us go right. So on top of the work we've been doing to make change and create justice, We've also got the ability to now understand neurologically, it's not about bad people. It's about socialization and how our brain comes wired with these tendencies. Well, we can also, we can't change the wiring, but we can alter the, the socialization, which is expanding the circle of we. So, as we start understanding the problem at its greater depth, we can actually create solutions that don't require so much heavy lifting. We're not mm-hmm. trying to change bad people. What we're trying to do is activate empathy. We're trying Mm -hmm. to connect to people's lived experience, even if their lived experience is different than my lived experience. But people have the ability to do that. And I think that sometimes, especially when we're doing justice, we can get lost and just start categorizing people into like people that are hopeless, that are never going to change. Like, no, nobody's ever hopeless, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's, it's about how we enter this conversation, how we show up ourselves and what our orientation is and our own capacity as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's so much there. Just the this, this self-aware awareness. I, I share stories sometimes into my my trainings where we talk about the person who actually trained me on uh, the intercultural competence education. And he was talking about how he was at a college campus and with a friend, a female friend. And he was like, yeah, do you want to go study at the library at 9 PM or so? She was like, no, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And he was like, well, why? She was like, well, I just don't feel comfortable being on campus that late. And he's like, oh, why is it because you're a, a woman or just, you know, so, and then he asked her to tell her, well, just tell me what your experience is like. And she was like, well, before I do tell me what it's like being on campus as a man, as a man at 9 PM. And he was like, I don't know. I never thought about it. I'm just, I'm just there, you know? (laughs) And she was like, well, how can you really relate to my feelings and my experience? If you haven't even taken the moment to think about how, how it is for you to be, you know, just in these different social right. spheres with your different identities. And that's why I, I do have something because we're the diamonds, but it, it's fashioned after the the circle of the circle of cultural lenses or the, the circle of identities. I just put them on diamond facets because there's all these facets. And even for me, you know, I categorize myself as someone, I have a speech impediment. I had a IEP, you know, I, I stuttered. That is something that influences the way that I operate within different so- social spheres, you know, and other people may not wake up wondering if they can say their name fluently. That's something that crosses my mind every day. And so I love the the carrot questions, <laughs> you know, like how can I get into the internal universe, right? Someone said the, the mind is actually like a universe. A person is a universe unto themselves. As we begin to close out, I do want to just get your thoughts because my work is really based in the creativity aspect. Yes, it's intercultural creativity, neurosomatic creativity. And I think a lot of our work is based in the creativity aspect because what you're doing, what you're fighting for is justice. So people can be in a position to be fully creative, right? And to be fully able to show up and contribute during their 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 time on this earth. And uh, one point before I get to that, you said wonder, wonder. And, and that's really the alignment of this work of you're telling people to increase wonder, with the person to humanize it, but you know, wonder is an essential part of creative thinking, nice. correct? So you <laughs> see how how they align. Like you you can't you can't really separate them. And so <laughs> businesses are like, oh, we're all about innovation, we're all about creativity, but we want nothing to do with <laughs> with this work over here. Um, or I'm like, yeah, you you can't really separate it because some of your best ideas are in the people who are not speaking up. That's you right. know, they're 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 in the receptionist, they're they're in the manufacturing, you know, or they have a seat at the table and they f- still feel they can't right. speak up. So, what are your thoughts about how America needs to get on our creative game? The World Economic Forum did list it as a top one of the top skills needed in this next AI workforce. We need creativity, we need innovation, but we're still struggling in in this area of justice for people to actually show up and be their full creative selves.
1: Right. So I'm not as familiar with the research on, on creativity, but the, the entry point for me around creativity is psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, mm-hmm. And why that's important is that research shows that the number one factor for high-performing teams is psychological safety. Psychological safety, high-performing teams are the ones that are innovating. They are being creative. They are thinking outside the box. Why can they do that? Because they're in an environment where they can challenge each other.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They can
1: challenge upwards, they can challenge sideways, they can challenge downwards, they do it respectfully, but they're not afraid of disagreement. But that requires a bunch of baby steps to be put in place. You don't just show up in a space, like, okay, we're gonna be psychologically safe now, we're gonna be afraid <laughs> of high performing.
0: That's See, look, I put it. a sign on the wall. It's there now, right? There's like put things on the wall and it's done. <laughs>
1: That's right. And it's like, no. You've got to create, you've got to earn it. And leaders especially have to earn it. And so psychological safety, what are the baby steps you put in place to get to encourage feedback? What are the baby steps you put in place to allow people to actually speak about how they're actually feeling about something? What are the baby steps you put in place that allows people to raise complex and sensitive issues and not feel like they're going to be reprimanded, that there's going to be a consequence if they say something that's unpopular? by their supervisor or by their peers. All of those require baby steps to be put in place. So when I think about baby steps that you were talking about with your blessing bags, that's a beautiful baby step. You're building that in into your own awareness, but also into your child's awareness. This is a habit. Well, equally, there's lots of baby steps and habits you can put into. We always, in our teams, we start every day with a team check-in. Hey, on a scale of one to 10, how's everybody doing? Right. And we go around. Sometimes it takes two minutes. and Sometimes it takes 20 minutes. But even if it takes longer, I know that as a leader, I've saved time. Because it's helped. Something's gotten processed. I know where there's strength and weakness in the system. Someone's having a hard day. Someone's having a good day. All those things help. Modeling leaders, especially modeling the ability to take feedback, especially if it's critical to invite feedback that might be critical and learning to apologize when we screw up to do that publicly, all those are examples of baby steps that say, actually, this is real here. So we know that when people feel like they matter and belong, when they feel like their opinions are valued, when they feel like they themselves are valued, that everything goes better. People are more productive. They're way more creative. They think outside the box. That's what all the research shows. They're more resilient when there's setbacks. There's fewer sick days because people don't need them as much there's lower rates of absenteeism so when i think of the question around creativity i see that within a broader umbrella of you we create creative contexts in the workplace when we create psychologically safe contexts where these are feedback rich environments where people can show up as them, as their whole selves and when we can do that we're then able to access those voices that might otherwise not say what they want to say, those ideas that might not have been heard the first time around, that we invite those into the space. And I think that's ways in which we access the greatest potential around creativity, around innovation, around advancement, and just around also just having an environment where people enjoy being there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We spend so much time at work, right? <laughs> so what does that that look like? So much there in a term that came to mind when you were talking about can people challenge, and I love upward, word and downward, right, is a creative abrasion. You know, can you have a creative abrasion? And that goes into looking at the humanization of, of the person. A lot of times in my trainings, and not a lot of times, we um, uh, have like leg- Legos. Uh, and, and play Plato. I told told you I was like an elementary ed, <laughs> right? We, we come in, see grown men and women doing Legos is, is amazing. But it, that's one of the tactics we do to kind of get their ideas nice. away from them and on the table, you nice. know, so people don't feel like, oh, you're attacking my idea, which means you're attacking me but it's really no let's let's really develop this idea we're also using a lot of techniques from jazz you know i'm I'm bringing the arts into it and how do jazz musicians really create on the fly and use mistakes as part of the message and there's a great book called say yes to to the mess leadership lessons from jazz that i'm really in right right now and so there's a lot of uh brain research on how the neurosciences are bringing in jazz and music Beautiful. Ah, so much there. So much there. But I want to get get your ideas about school because you are a middle school teacher. And, you know, Carol Dweck has his work with a fixed mindset, growth mindset, and then something I'm adding to it, prismatic mindset of how do we take a growth mindset and not just for us, but really ripple it out to help other people grow as well. But she gave me some startling thoughts where she said the mindset of a teacher is one of the largest influences of student success. Mm. And this is very true for students from marginalized groups. Mm. So meaning if I come in and I have this stereotype that kids from this particular group are, you know, are lazy or whatever, low performing, no matter what I do, like my body language will communicate right. that even if I'm not saying it verbally that's whereas right. if I say you know what these kids can shine I know they can do it let's put them in the, their zone of proximal development so yeah. that's that first question I know I give you a lot of questions in one thing so I'm so sorry but they're that first question and then moving them into the workforce now you have all a lot of kids who dealt with I call it creative trauma from their formative years and then we send them to organizations <laughs> with some more trauma, especially if they have multiple identities that are not of the dominant level. So yeah. What are your thoughts first with K-12, K-22 of what we're doing to the mindsets of of our kids?
1: Well, you know, I fully agree about this idea of like the mindset. And what I think about is our assumptions that we're going and all the things that we talked about in-group-out-group dynamics who looks like a successful student, who does not, whose behavior do I resonate with and whose do I not? Remember like teachers, we were good at school, you know? So therefore we show up with a very narrow understanding. That's a good point. Of how, of what school's supposed to be like. Because if we're a teacher, we usually, for the most part, did well at school. But what about the kids that are struggling with ADHD? What about the kids that are on the spectrum what about any number of neurodiversities that that are at play what happens if i don't know the patterns that black kids have to suffer against for the most part before they even walk into the school Mm -hmm. and then by the teachers what happens if i don't know how anti-black racism plays out well if i don't know then my mindset is going to be very narrow my lack of awareness around patterns and not having even the basic 360 hours at play is going to mean my, my, my mindscape is going to be based mostly on my own lived experience and maybe a little bit more.
0: True. True. So,
1: you know, I, I want to tell you a story because I think when we think about equity, we think about how do we deal with kids and how do we work on fairness and things like that? Like I'm reminded of a friend of mine who, his name is Nick. Nick. And he won't mind you telling telling me this story because it's really inspiring. He's one of the few male teachers that his his thing that he's loved t- teaching his entire time is like kindergarten. Okay. He loves kindergarten, but he's the most gifted teacher I know because he integrates two things. He integrates deep level of emotional intelligence into into working with the kids. He teaches them about the brain, about their amygdala, teaches them how to react and respond. He does all that kind of stuff. But on top of that, he also has a deep understanding of equity. So from the first day when he's working with kids in any context, they're working on issues around fairness. He's teaching them from the first day about, you know, what's the difference between... Fairness and sameness. And how is it sometimes that that doesn't work out so well if everything was the same? So, if I gave everyone two sandwiches at lunch, what about the kids that need four because they just have a bigger appetite? What about the kids that only need one? So, he gets them starting to think about the differences of where sameness matters and where fairness matters. And fairness means we start giving people things according to their needs. So the story that I'm, I'm reminded of is like, so you know, I had this child come in into my, into my class, and the child is like hardly five years old, has got all kinds of behavioral issues, and fights with kids, can sometimes even get violent, all this kind of stuff, right? This child also happens to be a, a student of color. Now, There's no diagnosis. We don't know whether he's on the spectrum. We don't know if there's ADHD. We don't know trauma. And for Nick, it actually doesn't matter. What he starts doing, he starts noticing behaviors. And what he realizes, one of the behaviors is that this child at recess has to go down the slide five or six more times, even though the bells rang and everyone's lined up. There's something happening there. So, what would a conventional teacher do to be like, no, you've got to line up and you get really on that. After watching it a few times, realizing, hey, getting, you know, trying to encourage them is not working. He says, Okay, there's this is there's a need being expressed here. Now I can't have him going down the slide 10 times because now we're just waiting. But there's something about this that is there's something necessary here. And because of his awareness of equity, because he knows all the different ways in which kids of color are often mistreated, and he's like I need to do something here. And so he talks it over with, with the student and says, look, you can't go down 10 times, but how about this? Once we get lined up, you get to go down three more times. All right. And so in this in this process, the students being heard, students being witnessed, and the students being supported. And interestingly, he brings the class into it and says, hey, we have one of our classmates that needs something a little bit more. And it's going to feel a little bit weird, but we're going to need your help. How about we help? What could we do? And so he gets the kids into the conversation and the kids within like a week or two are now supporting their peer. They're getting lined up so that their peer can do three more times sooner. But there's something in that dynamic that helps calm this child down. Now, I don't have that skill level. But that to me is like is, is where you take the idea of patterns, where you take the idea of fairness versus sameness. The sameness strategy means you yell at the kid, you give him consequences, try to get the line up, and it's not working anyway. And because of his ability and that's just one example of so many examples Nick ends up being one of those teachers, and he's also a teacher of color, where the toughest, the kids that are struggling the most immediately find respite. They find connection in a place in a system where they're mostly feeling disconnected. And there's no child he hasn't ever been able to work with Mm -hmm. in that process because he brings that pattern awareness in, because he brings that recognition of emotions and knowing that stuff's going on. He doesn't need a diagnosis. He's looking at behavior and he has a deep understanding of Everything's not rational, but we can't approach everything rationally. And and so finding finding the way to supporting what a child needs, now that child is actually performing in class. Mm -hmm. The child's struggles with their peers has gone down. Child is not blowing up. And the child, Mm -hmm. if you test them, might be on the spectrum somewhere. They might have trauma in their background. They might have any number of things, but guess what? The child's performing in class Mm -hmm on a level that they never were before yeah Yeah. right and so and so creativity for me is Nick creativity is the ability for a teacher to show up with that kind of mindset where they know patterns across society they know children and they're willing to adapt themselves and help their class and peers adapt so that a child is not being ostracized but being supported for their different needs
0: that's a prismatic, a mindset that is beautiful. That reminds me of a story that I, I share on my keynote about a, a child that was just tapping, right, tapping, 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 and teachers sending him out, sending him to the to to the classroom, and everything that the students like. Ah, am I gonna stop tapping? And then he gets in the fifth grade, and one tea teacher just calls him like clint his name is clint pulver he he, he's a speaker now and just says you know stay behind there the kids leave and clint thought he was in trouble again and the teacher says "Uh, you're not in trouble i think you're a drummer (laughs) so he reaches in his desk and pulls out two drumsticks and puts it in his hand and clint pulver is now drummed for the top bands and around the world has traveled around the world and now does a lot of speaking you can look look him up the video like brought me to tears because that's once again, a symbolism of the interaction, I believe, between cultural development Mm -hmm. and creative thinking. In my seven gems, one of the gems is observation, like heightening your observation skills. And it seems like Nick had just, Nick and Mr. Jentz and Clint's teacher had that stop the judgment, take a step back, observe well, and be curious and wonder, okay, well, what's really at play here? and great teachers do that great leaders do that we're calling them prismatic leaders where they can they can really pull out the hidden gifts and they take the time to do that. And that's a skill that we're going to need in this banny environment, B-A-N-I, brittle, anxious, non-linear, and incomprehensible, right? It's that new business term mm-hmm. that people are throwing out, especially with AI and them doing all the rational stuff. Mm-hmm. We have to up our game in the emotional self-awareness, effective world, right? Affect. so wonderful. Thank you so very much. We're just gonna end with your gem, right? We are. We are the gems, the diamonds here. That's my logo. And you're just a wealth of information. People can definitely go check you out. I'll have all your your links. But what is one gem that you would like to leave us with today?
1: For some reason, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about something that was an old Hindu proverb taught to me by my father. We do not see things as they are. We see things as we are.
0: And that's very true. And now we have the neuroscience to back that up, right? So
1: <laughs> <Thank you laughs> Wonderful. Much. This was a real pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And any particular place that you would love people to go to directly if they wanted to connect with, with you? I do see you are very active on LinkedIn and I'm following you, learning from you. So now you're one of my mentors as well.
1: Oh, thank you. Sure. I mean, the easiest place to track me down is also through our organization, com a n i m a leadership.com and and you can find me on lots of social media channels at shaquille rights
0: wonderful thank you so much thank you to our audience for joining us and don't forget to shine bright like a diamond you are creative and we are waiting the world is waiting for your creativity thanks so much thank you so much for joining us at the create and grow podcast We hope that you obtain some amazing gems and are able to learn the various ways you are creative and how we can be more creative when we work together. If you wish to learn more about our organizational training programs and professional development for companies, organizations, schools, and districts, visit cafestrategies.com. That's C-A-F-F-E strategies.com. This is where we have amazing keynote speakers and certified facilitators on board to help your organization learn how to develop leaders with the unique prismatic leadership method. We also have groundbreaking book titles in our online bookstore that lay out the seven gems of intercultural creativity, as well as our inner child books that inspire the innate creative ability of our little ones and you too. Our team thanks you once again for joining us on the Create and Grow podcast. And remember to shine bright like a diamond. See you next time.